It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. He's going to explain that new, uh, that breaking story about how it's easier than ever to crack passwords. Oh, my goodness. We'll also answer uh, questions from our viewers and talk a little bit about an update on, on the portable uh, bark killer or the hush puppy, as it is now known. It's all ahead with Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 381, recorded December 5th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 156. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files, just $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that explains, helps uh, you understand, and in fact, helps you preserve your privacy and security online. And there is has never been a better time to do that than right now. Fortunately, we got our explainer-in-chief right here, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Good to have you. Uh, here we are another Wednesday, and yes, yet another security flaw. <laughs> it just never ends, does it? Ah, uh, yes, we never run out of material. Yeah. And I have to say that um, I'm getting feedback from our listeners who are, I would say, overwhelmingly, not 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 without exception, but overwhelmingly do enjoy our divergences from the topic. We're not, we're not going to turn this into the portable dog whistle show or the... The TV review, you know, sci-fi review show or anything, but you know, I, I think people enjoy hearing what you and I think about things. Sometimes when it's not about security, so um, I'm 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 seeing the feedback from people. Um, the 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 response to the dog whistle uh, project being brought back to life has been phenomenal. So you know, we'll give it a little bit of time. We'll keep the show focused on on what it is, but I'm, you know, I wanted to recognize that our listeners are, you know, enjoying us. Well, of course, <laughs> but of course, Mr. G, I'll tell you what, before we uh, get into that, and of course, uh, all our questions, uh, let us mention briefly Carbonite, because whenever you're talking security, one of the first things that comes to mind is, gosh, I hope this is backed up. <laughs> Carbonite is all about doing backup right uh, what would, what do I mean by right? Well, I can think of a few attributes that the perfect backup would have. I would say automatic, so you don't have to remember it. You know, it just does it. That's kind of that's kind of fundamental, right? But a lot of backup systems, eh, you know, people. A lot of people set it up. Oh, every Sunday I'll back up, and they don't remember. My dad. That's I asked him. What do you what do you how often do you back up? He says whenever I think of it. No, that's not enough. And in fact, it, ideally, it wouldn't be uh, uh, like every week because what happens if you have a crash on Saturday and you're backing up on Sunday, you've lost seven or six days worth of data. So ideally, automatic and continuous 
whenever you're online, perhaps, um, should be off-site because you don't want it next to your computer because if a really big disaster happens, the house falls over, uh, then you, you want to have backups that are somewhere off-site. And I can add a few things security now listeners would want, probably TNO encryption, so only you hold the key, only you know what's there. And this is all offered by Carbonite. Carbonite is online backup. It's secure, uses 128-bit SSL during transport, but you can add a security encryption if you want with your high, strong encryption uh, and with your own key. Uh, you do lose some features, as always, with uh, when you're using encryption. Um, not not all the features will work because, uh, for you know, I can't remember which ones don't work, but you know, they they, they explain it in the FAQ. Well, like like web-based access, you right. would be able to go somewhere else and access it through a web page because they would exactly. not be able to decrypt it in order to provide it to you. Exactly. In fact, that's that probably is the main thing. They do. If you don't do that, they do have uh, apps and a cloud-based architecture that lets you access your data anywhere, anytime. You don't have to wait for disaster, so you can log into your Carbonite account on any computer with their smartphone apps and uh, access the data. I presume that that does not work if you're using TNO encryption, but you wouldn't want it to if you think about it. Um, what else? Oh, price, $59 a year. So that's less than 5 bucks a month for everything on your computer. That's pretty darn good. You could try it for two weeks without a credit card, just your name. I mean, if you really want to have privacy, give them an email address and uh, try it. Oh, and our name, Security Now, one word. Uh, and you got 14 days free. If after the 14 days you say, yeah, this is working for me, uh, you can get uh, a free months, free two months, 14 months for the price of 12 when you when you buy it. But you have to use security now for the trial. So Carbonite.com, use the offer code security now. True TNO, automatic, continuous, off-site backup. It's just the best. All right, Steve, uh, I guess we should start with this. I saw it in Ars Technica. It was kind of the headline in Ars Technica uh, today. Yeah, it got a lot of attention. Um, there is ha, has been, um, and for the last couple of days, in Oslo, Norway, a conference called Passwords to the Twelfth. And um, during that conference, there were a couple presentations from researchers that have upped the ante on brute force password cracking technology once again. Um one researcher, Jeremy Gosney, um, and if his name's familiar, it's because he w- we've talked about him before. Um, he's the guy who processed the 6.4 million LinkedIn password hashes that had leaked. He ran them against the most common password list. And, for example, that's where Monkey was number 14 or something. <laughs> it was like, my password. Bizarre. Oh, bizarre that everyone was using monkey yeah um so uh and i can't remember there was some strange number that was also one two three four five six seven eight nine is very popular because yeah this was a little odd that so many people would have independently chosen it but you know very much like monkey but anyway he demonstrated a a rig as he called it um which leverages the open computing language which is open cl framework um, and a, a technology that he found after VMware disappointed him because he wasn't able to to do sort of cloud-based um, 
sort of um, community computing with VMware, but a pro an older project that had been around for a long time called Virtual OpenCL. It allowed him to to essentially associate multiple for you servers equipped each with 25, 25 AMD Radeon GPUs, which were communicating at 10 gigabits across an InfiniBand switched fabric. So which is to say that he needed a large number of GPUs, you know, graphics processing units, custom programmed for hashing. But the, all, the key, aside from having that many, was getting them to communicate. That is bringing down the communication barriers so they could, they, they could coordinate their work. So he was able to do that using this virtual open CL fabric. As a consequence, he was able to demonstrate far more potent brute force password cracking than we've seen before. So, for example, the maximum character length Windows XP password, he chose, chose Windows XP as an example because it uses the older landman style hash where it takes, it has a 14 character maximum. It, and it's not very secure. That's the point of this. It converts lowercase to uppercase of it to at most 14 characters. And it actually, for some weird reason, splits them into two seven-character strings before hashing. So that reduces the amount of work that needs to be done. So only 69 to the seven um, hashes need to be uh, performed. As a consequence of that, using knowing what the algorithm is, it is now possible for this system and things of that scale to brute force crack any Windows XP password in six minutes. So Any Windows XP password in six minutes. Do they have to have physical access to them? I guess they would, to the machine. Yeah, so, so again, this is, to, to be clear, this is an, a so-called offline attack. You'd so, for example, database or something. Exactly. Yeah. So if someone got it, got your machine and wanted and got the hash, this reverses the hash by doing a brute force forward going um, simulation of the weak LM, you know, the landman, which is old ha um, algorithm. So it, it turns out that as a, as a consequence, he's able to do the algorithm at 20 giga hashes, that is giga <laughs> attempts per second. Wow. And so it takes six minutes to try all of them. So, for example, if there was ever a database of landman hashes that got loose in the same way that we see other hashes getting loose all the time, they're just toast. So, so there's one benchmark. Another is the more recent NTLM, the and and that's an update on the the algorithm um that's able to run at 348 mm. giga attempts per second so an ntlm hash takes about five and a half hours to crack an eight character password so so this this really moves things forward and the <laughs> sha1 he can he can now run he can crack those at 63 giga attempts per second 
an MD5 at 180 giga attempts per second. So what we're seeing here now, okay, these are these are ex- the, these are old weak algorithms. And so, for example, when we apply state-of-the-art um, password-based key derivation that we've talked about, for example, you know, a thousand iterations of even something like SHA-1, well, now we go from five and a half hours to five and a half thousand hours. So, you know, it's a whole, it, so state-of-the-art approaches, if they're used still provide us with substantial strength. So it's what so what we're seeing is we're we're seeing the 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 core level of speed jump forward um almost sort of following Moore's law which you know is the famous law talking about you know the the, the rate at which chips get small and processing power increases and so forth um that that Intel put forward years ago and it's bizarre how well we've been following this 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 curve of performance increase even when we keep thinking that we're 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 hitting a dead end we find a way around it so anyway that was one of the presentations the second one was from the developer of hashcat which we've talked about before that's the the software that does very very fast brute force password cracking um the the developer who's Jens Stube S T E U B E maybe it's Stube, um, he also demonstrated yesterday in Oslo a very clever optimization that he had designed for brute forcing SHA one hashing. He you know he's he's been staring at this as the developer of Hashcat. He's looking at this. How can we make this faster? So. What he realized was looking carefully at the the way SHA-1 works, in any situation where you are going to be running many closely related inputs through SHA-1, there's a lot of it, if you were to do them independently, which is being duplicated in the algorithm. So... He realized that by by taking sets of of input brute force tests and looking at the way they run the hash the same, he could do a pre-calculation one time to cover that group in mass and produce a 21% improvement in performance. So he he shaves 21% off the time required to crack large numbers of passwords, essentially. So this is just, this is again, this reminds us of Bruce Schneier's comment that attacks never get worse, they only get better. Or maybe that is worse. But anyway, they only, <laughs> they only get faster. They only get better. Faster, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, so, again, this is nothing to, to run around and worry about except for any sites that are still using old strategies. For example, you know, the Windows XP operating system itself is, by definition, using a, a very old strategy since it's so old. But websites that 
are just doing, for example, one SHA1 hash and also allowing those hashes to leak out onto the net, well, they're just toast now. I mean, that's just like not, it's, it's a no-brainer. If anybody who wants to grabs a database of SHA1 hashes, they can be brute forced so that it, I mean, it's just like, you know, cutting through air. It's not a problem. So it really does take, it now th- th- this does say it's increasingly important for people to do password-based key derivation. That is, you know, thousands of iterations on this. And we know that iOS does now. We know that LastPass has been now for some time. Um, although, if you're an older LastPass user, they haven't changed that for you. So you do need to go in and turn that on, which is a transparent change. And that's, you know, again, for this sort of reason, definitely worth doing. Um, and you and I were, were mentioned briefly this note um, that, that you had encountered before we began recording. Um, but I've, I thought this was important for our listeners to hear. An Australian man, William Weber, was recently arrested for running a TOR, that is a, you know, TOR is the acronym for the onion router, a TOR exit node. Uh, the police raided his home where he had seven Tor exit node servers running that were piping terabytes of data back and forth daily. Um, they were seized and he was arrested for trafficking in child pornography. So what had happened was that users of Tor were, were leveraging the anonymity which Tor by design creates. And remember that Tor was designed by the U.S. military. It was a U.S. Oh, naval I didn't know research. That. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, it was the U.S. naval research lab that that designed this. And we, we we for listeners who don't know about Tor, that is people who have come in in the last few years, we have a podcast where we very carefully explain the technology, and it is way cool. Mm. Um, they it's called an onion router because it. it it was named after onions that are made of layers of, of, you know, onion. (laughs) And, you know, so, and we've all heard the expression, you know, peeling the onion, peeling the layers off the onion. So um, the idea is that as traffic moves through a cloud of Tor nodes from one Tor node to another, as it, as, as the traffic you you plot the path that you're going to take before you send traffic into the Tor cloud. So you say, hey, we're going to go to this server, this server, this server, this server, this, this server. You then get the public keys of each of those servers, and you prepare a packet by successively encrypting the your data in the sequence in, in actually in the reverse sequence that you're going to be traversing and and each layer only knows about the next jump it's going to make you then put this packet into the first tor node that server has it is is it's only able to decrypt its layer of the onion because it has its private key that matches the public key which it advertises. So it takes that layer off and then it looks at 
the next layer, which instructs it where to send this somewhat smaller onion module, and it sends it to that node. That node, oh, and by the way, this server is cannot decrypt what's in the onion because it doesn't have the next node's private key. All it can do is forward it. Anyway, if you want, if you want more, check out the podcast we did on Tor on the onion router. The, but the, I guess the point is it's designed to preserve anonymity, not security. It doesn't replace a VPN, but it anonymizes um, incoming and outgoing traffic. No, it replaces a VPN even better than, than a VPN does. Okay, okay. Yeah. Because it's encrypted it, traffic. Yes. Yeah. And, and so the point is that people... Is it encrypted to the Tor? Um, it's, it's encrypted and its path is encrypted... And so the whole idea is that there there is no way to find out who's at the other end. Right. So what what happened in this case is that authorities saw child porn images going through the internet and they saw where they were headed. They were headed to William Weber's living room or wherever he has his seven tour nodes. And so they said, oh, this guy is trafficking in child pornography. Well, he's not. He is the, the so-called exit node is at the end of all this jumping around inside the Tor network. At some point, it needs to emerge onto the Internet after having jumped around enough to confuse everybody so they can't figure out where it actually came from. And that's the point. This really, really does work in hiding who is actually behind the requests which emerge from the exit node. So somewhere back at the beginning of that traffic was somebody who actually was trafficking in child pornography or, or going to servers that made this stuff available but they were using Tor to hide behind, to hide their identity, and it works. It does that. But the point is that at some point, it needs to emerge onto the Internet in order to go, I mean, whatever. It's certainly useful for many other things. I mean, you know, for, for free speech advocates, um, this was designed by our government, the U.S. government, because they wanted to hide their own footprints and be able to poke around out on the internet and having there be no way for them to be for it to be traced back to them. So, I mean, this is it is world class strength anonymity, but as always is the case, it can also be abused. And so there were there were criminal abusers using Tor to hide, but the authorities didn't understand what was going on. In fact, um Mr. Weber said he he he, he was he, he said after the raid he was interviewed by police who he said became quote more friendly unquote after he explained how Tor worked right. and that he was not responsible for what people did via the Tor anonymizing system and he said he had kept no log files well frankly log files don't help i mean nothing helps this system really does work for 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 hiding the identity of the people making the requests. This is interesting, of course, for us because 
it does demonstrate something that I've always been concerned about, which is exit nodes are potentially vulnerable to, to, to first of all, if nothing else, to misunderstanding of this sort, but also to, you know, this kind of unfortunate exploitation of, of the anonymity. I mean, because the, the anonymity Tor provides is, I mean, absolute. It really does work. So is he off the hook? No. In fact, um, he's appealing now for donations to help fund his legal defense and establish a legal precedent uh, which would help protect other operators of Tor exit nodes from similar police attention. Um, and he faces a lengthy prison sentence if found guilty of distributing images of child sex abuse. Hmm. So, I mean, he's in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, this this sounds like the kind of thing where the EFF will, you know, step up and say, okay, you know, we agree, you're not a bad guy, um, and we'll help explain this to the judge. Well, if and, not, nobody will ever want to run a tour node again. Well, and now, you mentioned VPNs, because as, as you know, they're similar. This has been a concern, I mean, this should be a concern of anyone who offers a VPN service... Because a VPN does it much less exotic, but very much the same thing. When you know when you when you use a VPN, your traffic is encrypted. It goes to the VPN server, that is the other endpoint of the VPN, which then decrypts that the traffic traveling through that tunnel and typically releases it onto the internet. So. You, you would use a VPN, for example, at a, at, a, at a Starbucks that has unencrypted Wi-Fi in order to prevent your traffic from being sniffable until it got to wherever the VPN server was. Then it would decrypt it and off it goes. So, again, if you were doing something, if you were doing something illegal or questionable or if you were thinking this was giving you anonymity, a VPN actually doesn't give you much anonymity because it's very easy to watch the the VPN server and see the get get the IP of where the encrypted traffic is going that that's specifically why Tor was created and this so-called onion approach of, of multiple hops through the network which by the way does slow the traffic down a lot i mean it's not, it's not for real time sorts of things it's just way slow but the 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 what you get in return is anonymity but the again a vpn server ha, runs the same kind of risk because it's the ip that the authorities would see on the public internet for all of its customers that are using it so again it's 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 at this point it's a um a problem for the law to understand the kind of things that William Weber is trying now to explain to the police, and, you know, and that, you know, he's offering this service. And you can imagine, I mean, they're saying, well, why are you, are you getting, are you making money? And he says, no, I believe in, you know, freedom of speech on the internet. And they think, yeah, uh huh. Uh, and, you know, child porn is moving through your living room as a consequence. And, and he says, well, it, it's freedom of speech is, can be abused, but yeah. it's also, you know, a power for good. So, <sighs> um, meanwhile, following our interesting trail of John McAfee, <laughs> something 
that I just love the irony of this. Uh, John's location leaked um, a couple days ago. He um, at, and and I saw some people commenting that it was just due to pure ego. Um, but a company, a, a magazine called Vice dot uh, com, their headline was "We are with John McAfee right now, suckers," meaning they were like you know poking at the authorities that were unable to find John, and they're saying we're with him right now. Yeah, because well, he uh, it, granted them an interview. Yes, yeah. he granted them an interview. So they they take a picture of John standing next to the reporter in a setting where his location is not obvious. So they, from, from the image in the photo, you can't tell where he is. Then they post this photo on their website with, you know, great fanfare. And a hacker says, huh. This grabs is, the this is so grab, stupid. <laughs> I can't even believe how stupid grab, this is. Okay. I know. Grabs the photo file <laughs> off the server and takes a look at the metadata containing the GPS time and position. So stupid. Of exactly where and when the photo was taken. Uh, <laughs> so stupid. So, you know, so I mean, you'd imagine that John Who's I think he's savvy. moved by now. Well, yeah. Um, I think he's in, in Guatemala fact, he, now is the latest. He, init he initially obfuscated when this first became, the, this first arose, the, the idea that he, he, he'd been outed by the photo which was taken of him. Then the next day after, he, I'm, after I'm sure he had relocated, he said, well, yes, that did happen. It w you know, and it wasn't his camera phone. It was the photographer who... You know, had you know, track me and post yeah. my location into the metadata of everything I do. It's like whoopsie. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, mm -hmm. I thought that was sort of interesting. And wow, really interesting news about flash memory. Um, a Taiwanese company appears to—I mean, seriously—appears. To have solved the where problem of flash memory. We've talked about this often. That I mean it is it is what's been holding flashback is, so to speak, is that it only can be written to about ten thousand times. Now, that's fine for a little thumb drive that you carry around with your files on it, if you actually do the math. How many days that would last at ten at you know for ten thousand rewrites, and when you also then consider that the flash memory, as a consequence of the fact that it tends to wear out, has all this so-called wear leveling logic. That is to say that the problem of of flash wearing out has been has been dogging it forever. It turns out that it's been known. That a, the process of so-called annealing, that is, uh, a, 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 a annealing is heating up the memory. Annealing cures the wear problem, but that requires heating it up. It's been believed that that, that would you know, prevent it being, from being used practically. But it turns out that these guys at Macronix, which is the Taiwanese company, they took some tricks from 
a different type of technology which is not yet ha, has not yet made it to the world called phase change technology which where phase change actually changes the structure of of a type of glass it does that by by producing spot heating essentially they took that concept and they create they, they designed a an architecture of a flash memory that allows milliseconds of local heating to about 800 degrees C. Now, this is not the whole chip. This is just, this is, you know, a microscopic little region of the chip is resistively heated in order to remove any problem with memory. And and we've talked before that the problem is, essentially the way flash works is you have an insulator and you use high voltage to drive electrons through the insulation. You Essentially, you break down the insulation by using a voltage, and we know that voltage is pressure. You, essentially, you just pressure the electrons to squirt through the insulator, and you strand them out on a little island. And then the way field effect transistors work, that's what the field that they're being affected by is the charge on this little stranded island. And that's how the memory works. So the problem is, in the process of squirting these electrons through an insulator, that's job is to resist that, the insulation begins to break down. And after about 10,000 of the... And that's why there's a, there, there's a, there's a problem with write endurance. There's no problem reading because reading is non-destructive. No electrons have to pass through the insulator. It's when you are charging or discharging that little floating gate that that you're you're doing so by break, deliberately breaking down the insulation. Well, it turns out that briefly reheating it fixes it. And I mean fixes it completely. So whereas a normal flash cell has about a 10,000 cycle life, They're, they haven't found any deterioration after 100 million cycles. Wow. But so what, do you have to takes, put a little heater coil in the end? No, it's, it's <laughs> actually you distribute these little heaters and you actually integrate them right onto the chip. How so they're, 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 there's, there's, there's millions of those spread around the chip. And the idea is while it does take energy, it, this would be done, for example, while our smartphones are plugged in uh. and with energy available charging the battery or when our laptops are plugged in and having their battery recharged. Is it and destructive the is, to the content of the cell? Uh, I don't know, but they could certainly copy a, a, that oh, region. Copy, just what you do else. for spin right in a way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so this is so it goes from 10 to the 4th to 10 to the 8th. So 10,000 10,000 wow. essentially and that that's not like where it ends. They're saying that they they've only they've gone 100 million cycles and they have found no change. Wow. So this thing this may be a revolution in non-volatile non-spinning memory uh, technology. So it's very That's exciting. exciting. And it's funny That's great. Because I, I tweeted the link to the story this morning and a um, a one of our listeners, or at least a follower of mine, Bar Steward, uh, his, 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 
his description on on Twitter says lapsed physicist, coder, dad, stand up comedy junkie, inappropriate sense of humor, according to my boss, he says. So he wrote SGGRC heating redistributes the imperfections that allow stress-induced leakage current through Fowler-Nordheim quantum tunneling. There you go. And I thought, well, obviously. You're sealing off the tunnel. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, re, it's re-chaosing re, um, re the, uh, the substrate. Yeah, and I mean, it so makes absolutely That's what I'm going to call it. That's right. That Leo refers to it as re-chaosing. That's good. Yeah, but, it, I mean, this is huge. This It'll take a few years probably to for this thing to hit. Maybe not even that because, I mean, the, the flash memory technology is mature. They have, to, they have to then print a layer of heater on top, but this this... This is, is really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, also, a listener of ours, Andrew, uh, who has a site, andrewtechhelp.com, he posted a nice or sent me a tweet about a page he had put together about how much easier it can be to disable Java in IE 8, 9, and 10. And that's just by using the built-in add-ons panel. Remember that um, I think it was Brian who... Um, Post, uh, we, we referred to Brian Krebs' page where he had instructions, and we commented that, oh my God, almost the entire page was taken up in registry changes. <laughs> it was all for Windows. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so uh, it's obvious in retrospect that you, you can just change the add-on settings in IE to turn off Java. Oh. So, so anyone who's interested can find, you can probably. Look at andrewtechhelp.com, and I imagine you'll find his blog post. Or look at my Twitter feed, because I just tweeted it for everyone um, who's interested, um, you know, which, of course, is twitter.com slash sggrc. And I, I, got a, I got a kick. I got a piece of feedback from Kyle Cronin, who said, at sggrc, best method of securing Java, colon, control panel, Uninstall programs, yeah. <laughs> Java uninstall. It's like yep. okay, yeah, right. Yeah, it's uh, true. But then I, but then someone said, "Hey, how do I know if it worked?" And I realized I have at GRC an absolutely safe Java applet that anyone could try. I have a big number calculator um, which I use for doing crypt- work on big crypto numbers. It's just under other, I think. Uh, off the main menu at GRC, and then you'll see big number calculator, or it's also grc.com slash big hyphen number hyphen calculator dot htm. And that's a little, I mean, that's a nice, well-behaved Java, not JavaScript, Java applet. And and if it doesn't work, that's good. (laughs) Because that means you don't have Java available to your browser which is, which is the, the problem. It's fine to have it installed in your computer. It's just you don't want web pages to be able to get to it uh, unless you know that they need to. And, of course, no script prevents this from happening unless you give, it, unless you give web pages permission uh, as well. So that, that's, that's also a solution. Great, um, great, great, great. A couple bits of miscellaneous. 
um, I tweeted a really neat link to a YouTube video. This was a recent production by BBC News. The Witch, W-I-T-C-H, the Witch Computer from Bletchley Park, which was one of the very early sort of electromechanical computers, has what well, it was found in a warehouse and it has been all the pieces put back together. It's been restored and is now working. And so now explain a, what this computer did. Um, Bletchley well, Park this, was the uh, was where the Enigma was uh, solved, right? Yes. Um, and this was apparently around, you know, uh, atom bomb R&D time. Ah, interesting. So there was there was code breaking, and and that's what Alan Turing was so involved in was was, was machines for automating the processing the, the the process of breaking German codes. Um, but so I'm not sure which aspect of of what Bletchley Park was doing, the witch computer was used for. But anyway, it's fascinating. They have these bizarre things called decatron tubes this was a decimal computer rather than a binary computer so these decatron tubes and you can look up decatron on wikipedia they're actually decade that is 10 counting units and so you could feed pulses in and they would move a like a neon glow around the tube and then send a pulse out when it when it when it went back to zero, so it's just like a decade counter, and so you so this thing this thing operated by very rapidly shooting thousands of pulses in, and this would accumulate them and and allow them to be read out and function as memory. Anyway, this YouTube video I also tweeted that, or you can imagine uh, find it on on YouTube, and uh, I ran across this thanks to Nathan Ramsey who had this in our feedback email that I saw. And I just did want to mention, Leo, um, I had here a note to tell you yet again how amazed I am by Homeland, <laughs> the series on Showtime. I told you and first. <laughs> you told me first, yes. I am you really – now, I finished the first season. I know the second season is already uh, almost done, actually. We have two episodes left in in the second season. So it's a, yeah. a Showtime series, so if you don't get Showtime, you're out of luck. But uh, it is uh, it is uh, Claire Danes uh, is fantastic oh. in it, and uh, what's the other guy? Damien? Um, yeah, I don't know, but he's equally oh, good. He's Williams. I mean, what is his name? Oh now? wait, you would have seen the interrogation scene. No, don't no spoilers. No, no, I won't. But but you did, right? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damien oh. Lewis. That's his name. Thank you, Punchy. Oh, yeah. Wow. Very good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. It's uh, and you know who's actually. It doesn't get as much credit as I think he deserves is Mandy Patinkin, who is in it as well. He's the guy who in um, uh, who has said, you know, my name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Now prepare to die. In, not in that show. <laughs> in, in another show. Thinking, another wait, movie. This episode? Yeah, another movie. But he's a bro- wow. what's funny. He's a broad. He's Princess Bride. He's a Broadway singer. Uh, you know, performer who is really best known as a singer who's uh, just a great dramatic role. He's playing Saul. Oh, Saul. Oh, yeah. my God, yes. Saul's I, great. I, yes, fantastic yeah. role. Yeah, love yeah. that. And I also did want to mention that I saw the news that another series I've been enjoying, and I know that our li- our listeners have a lo- strong following there, and that's Fringe um, on Fox. The You know, it's had a really interesting run, but... 
they're not going to let it go forever. And in fact, the last episode is rapidly approaching on mm. January 18th of next year. So not many more uh, will be episode 100 and the end. 100 episodes. Wow. Yeah. So that's been going on for some time. That's like eight years. Yeah. Oh, and got Walter. And I mean, just it, it's again, I've, I've really, really enjoyed the series. It's it's strongly character driven. And of course, you know, we know that uh, Leonard Nimoy is one of the sometimes seen characters. They brought kind of brought him back, uh, <laughs> dusted him off uh, in order to uh, to show him. Oh, and speaking of which, there's a the trailer for the new for the next Star Trek movie is apparently going to be out. I think Thursday it, it comes out. So, is he in it? Ex- uh, no, I don't. No. Oh, I don't know. Is, but other, is this going to be another? Uh, uh, it, it's following from the new the cast that we exactly Good. that we just. That I really oh, enjoyed I the reboot. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and finally, the uh, the dog whistle project, uh, also known as the PDK. Although you know, I I cringe every time. No, I think no dogs no. are killed. You know, we decided you should call it the portable bark killer because that's really. The point of it is not to hurt the dog, yeah, but just to stop the barking. Yeah, I mean, even the original device was, a, you know, it was meant to be a, a trainer so that this rabid creature in the neighborhood when I was 15 would stop attacking people who were walking past. Um, Bothers the, the dog less than a swat with a newspaper or a yank on the choke chain. In fact, it's really no different than yelling at the dog in a surprising way. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, I just, I did want to mention that the pro- the project, project is moving forward rapidly. Um, I posted the schematic for the amplifier um, on the net. This is actually the entire electronics package I'm holding up to the camera. But for those who don't have uh, video, um, if you, I've got links in the Google group, um, which is just if you if you Google portable sound blaster, which is what I named the group a year ago last summer, you'll find the group. I'm really unhappy with Google groups, by the way, Leo. It just it's you can't edit it's, posts. It's abandoned. I think I don't think they're using it anymore. I'm very disappointed. Yeah. I'm I'm we need to organize a community somewhere else. Yeah. Um, because it's just not it's just annoying, but. Um, so the I've got the amplifier built, the schematic is done. I will I'll have one in hand. I almost I'm just like hours away from the the first handheld prototype. An amazing number of people have expressed an interest. So I want to for everyone to rest assured that as soon as I can. I like the I, Now the the bottom of the schematic there's a name that I really like. Yeah, I do too. Have you trademarked I, that yet? Well, I guess no, somebody else has the trademark. It's not actually. It's it's hush puppies is trademarked. The singular have all expired. And hush it puppy would be, wouldn't that be a good hush, name for it? It's a great name yeah. for it. So I'm just calling it the the, the hush, hush puppy. puppy electronic dog whistle. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I want everyone to know one way or another, your needs will be met. Um, I'm. I will. I will do it. Everything's going to be open for for the project. The the software, the schematic, the parts list. Um, 
it looks like it costs about ten dollars, so it's not an expensive thing. I've uh, the the that's design, not including speakers, though. That's just the board. No, nope, speakers two dollars. Really, <laughs> doesn't take much to hush There's that puppy. There, there, you can get a pair of them for four bucks with free shipping on Amazon. Oh man! So yeah, so it's really maybe we should out. do a, a know how on on this, and and you could be our special guest. I'm gonna talk to IS because you know we do a show, half hour show on exactly this kind of stuff. Building well, stuff, and, you know, and and I I heard him mention uh, the Arduino and yeah, anything an that Arduino. produces a square wave can drive the little power amplifier that I designed. This power amplifier is it turned out to be sort of amazing. It's five components. It takes a six volt DC from four double A cells or triple A cells and turns it into an eighty volt near sine wave across the tweeter wow. so it's and it's almost 100 percent efficient wow. so wow turned out it's turned out really well but what, what i want to say was if for, for people who can build things everything will be provided for you to be able to build one uh i'm i expect that there will be enough people who really have a need who are not construction people that they'll say, you know, I've got a barking dog. I my neighbor's a barking dog. I know I really, really want want to try this. What I want is feedback about how well it works, so we can see if it's useful. And so I'm willing to build some number of these and provide them for free in return for feedback. So and pictures as as of cha- of dogs with their tails between their videos, legs. I would love videos <laughs> of of dogs' reactions. Um, so anyway, so I, I'm just you know I'm doing this as quickly as I can. I'll get the pages up. There will be a, one of the, our standard sort of feedback style pages where everybody can s- explain who they are and what they want. We'll I'll get a sense for the size of the audience and we'll we'll you know move accordingly. So anyway, it's all happening and. Uh, where it's and oh, I should also mention that I, I mentioned that this was based on this, the Texas Instruments MSP four thirty. There's a development kit called the Launchpad, which TI sells for four dollars and thirty cents. Several of the people have posted over in the Google group that they ordered a couple, and they came like the next day. One guy said he ordered it on November thirtieth, and it came on December first. So that would be the next day, right? Because um, November only has thirty days. So yeah, and it came. Yeah. It came FedEx Express. So like the shipping clearly cost more. I mean, he, he you know, <laughs> than he, he even paid. So you know, they 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 really are four dollars and thirty cents. And great. you and I have a I'll have a design using those chips for, that are included in the launch pad uh, to drive this amplifier. So anyway, I. Right now, everything is over on this Google group, which I am not liking. I will be moving all – I'll have a whole – you know, the whole deal laid out on uh, grc.com as soon as I can get there. Good. Good, good, good. Oh, and uh, I almost forgot. I While I was going through the mailbag, um, I found a note from November 26th uh, from a Sean uh, Milochik who's – or Milochik? Uh, who's a listener of ours? He's in Reading, Pennsylvania, and, and the subject line 
Reading. Oh, yeah. uh, and the subject line caught my attention. He said, Spinrite fixed my drive and nobody cares. <laughs> That's true. And I thought, well, I care. <laughs> oh, you, Steve cares. <laughs> I care. So uh, I thought, okay, what? And I opened, I opened the note and he says, I came back from my Thanksgiving vacation to find a boot disk error on my work computer. The computer booted properly from my old hard drive. And the bad drive mounted fine as a secondary drive. So I ran Spinrite on level two. I canceled it 10% of the way through, assuming that something causing a boot error would be near the beginning of the drive. Sure enough, now I'm back to work and nobody really noticed or cared. That's how recovery should be. Actually, Thanks for Spinrite. Licensee since 2006 and Security Now listener since the beginning. Oh, that's great. So, Sean, thank you very much for sharing your story, and we all care. Did you? Did we ever send you that coffee uh, bespoke? <laughs> Leo, I, I apologize. Yes. Good. It's, no, you don't have, have to have, thank me or anything. I'm I haven't even opened it yet. That's oh, what is the problem. Right. <laughs> well, there's a new box I, of awesome. I just thought I'd mention it because, we, oh. as you know, bespoke is... Um, Kind of a holiday gift idea for well, any actually, it's a really like a monthly gift of the uh, gift of the month kind of a thing. Um, Forty five dollars, uh, although you can subscribe for multiple months. And we just got our new one, which I really like. Um, this is they call this the slate. I just want to show you, Steve. You're not getting this one though. I'm keeping this one. <laughs> yeah, because I will. If you don't open it, I'm not sending you another one. So you get a piece of slate. With a soapstone, so you can draw. This is for cheeses, so it keeps the cheese cool. Oh, and then you soapstone, nice. you draw the name, you write the name of the cheese uh, on there. And then there's a few other fun items uh, for you, like uh, some extra virgin olive oil, some balsamic vinegar. Uh, uh, oh, I'm gonna have this for lunch. A uh, <laughs> salt and pepper uncured salami, casalingo. Yes, Leo's Leo's box did not survive the day. No, you'll like this. Uh, Smokra, pickled okra with smoked paprika. Ooh. And then it says, roll them up with prosciutto. Smokra. Smokra. Anyway, this is an example. <laughs> we sent you uh, the one that had the coffee uh, grinder and the coffee beans. Oh. Bespokepost.com slash twit if you want to find out more. If you're looking for a holiday gift for uh, the geek in your life, don't give them gadgets. This is, a, this is, for, this is for men. So some of the, uh, the box of, boxes of awesome are kind of have a masculine uh, touch to them, socks and things like this. And Twit listeners, you'll save twenty percent on your first box when you uh, when you go to bespokepost.com/slash/twit. But do browse around and see what all the different boxes are. There's some really cool uh, different uh, gifts. Uh, if you don't like a particular gift, you, of course you can always reject it beforehand. Um, but I just you know I think it's great. Six box gifts, two hundred seventy bucks. So that's six months worth of gifts. Three bucks, one hundred thirty-five dollars, forty-five dollars for the single box, and it's guaranteed. It's always worth more than forty-five dollars. If you add the Twit code, you're saving big time. Cool. Yeah, bespokepost.com/slash/twit. Just thought I mentioned that for the the holidays. So let's do a Q and A. What do you say? Oh, what is that? Why we're here? That's oh. well, it's not why we're here. <laughs> no one knows why we're here, but uh, oh, I think all of our listeners keep telling me, "Don't ever stop. No matter what you do, do not stop." Oh no! So. In fact, you know, I was talking to Ayaz yesterday. He was a little toasted, so I don't know if he meant it, but he said that. <laughs> <laughs> Merry he Christmas! Said, was he that said, the company he said, Leo, I love doing security now. I love it. <laughs> he enjoys it. He says sometimes, though, it's a little hard to understand. I said, "Oh." 
don't think I understand everything Steve's saying. You've got to listen carefully and do your best. Well, now we have Tom moving to L.A. I have a feeling that Ayaz will be more inheriting the role. More of, of Ayaz, yes. Of hanging yeah. out when you're when you're off in. Where are you going to Greece for half That's a year That's not or till something? September, and I wish it were uh-huh. for half a year. I wouldn't mind we'll be that. be here no time. I'll be there three weeks. Uh, uh, September, I think, 17th we leave, and we come back in oh. October. But I, I decided to start planning early this time because, you know, this way. Planning is good. Yeah, this way everybody will know why we're not here. All right, I'm looking for your questions. I think you sent me two copies of the notes. Uh-oh. Is that right? I don't think so. The The, the title is very similar looking. One they says, are. I got it. I got it. I got okay. it. I got uh, it. Eight great questions and answers, starting with Sao Paulo, Brazil. Oh, actually, and it's 10, but I forgot to change the number at the top. Eight, I, 10, whatever. Okay, we'll go into it. Michael wants to know, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the amazing show. I've been listening for over four years. I've learned a lot. Do you have any updates on CloudBerry? This was a, a, a new cloud service that you mentioned a couple of episodes ago. Should I keep using Jungle Disk, or is it time to move to CloudBerry? So my feeling is that if, jung- if you're a Jungle Disk user and it works for you, then why not keep using it? Um, CloudBerry has additional advantages. My vetting of the security came out as full TNO, so it passes all of the trust no one tests. They have they are encrypting things absolutely correctly. I mean, maybe a little overkill, but that's as we know in security, that's a good thing. Um, I was a Jungle Disk user so long ago that I got like the lifetime for free deal. And I remember that um, they then terminated that. And so uh, CloudBerry is a pay only once. And it does also support the super inexpensive Amazon, you know, archival, you know, bury it in ice uh, technology, Glacier. Um, So I could see a switch making sense. And like leaving Jungle Disk behind, if Jungle Disk is them are themselves charging you periodically for the privilege, CloudBerry charges you one time, which is I think the right model for this. And then using Glacier, you can really, really save on on your data storage. And CloudBerry is also multi-cloud. Uh, Glacier is only one of a huge number of cloud services that it supports. So um, I, I haven't yet switched myself over but i'm i'm gonna do that just for what it's worth i i think it's the right solution so yes michael um it probably does make sense cloudberry i love the name <laughs> tom callahan cincinnati ohio settled the issue once and for all darn it steve i know you have a problem <laughs> i don't know if it's you I've, a lot of people have a problem with using the term reading when listening to an audiobook i had i get messages all the time because i always say reading when i'm doing the audible ad because i feel like it's reading a book and uh, I had one guy s- say in the chat room, you know, those of us who are neuroscientists really are irritated. I thought, you're not a neuroscientist. But anyway. <laughs> well, Tom, Tom, I, I think for everybody listening to this, Tom nailed He's going to flatten it? I All right. He is. But if reading is only something you do when looking at a book, then what is it blind people are doing when they read a book in Braille? Mm. Mm. They're feeling think- the book. Well, the point the is, what we're saying, clearly somebody using Braille 
He's I reading. Would, I would agree That's they are reading. reading the book with touch, which says that it's not which sense you use for input right. that matters. Exactly. You use, your, you use your eyes for input when you are reading visually. You use your fingers for input when you are reading uh. Braille. And you use your ears for input when you are reading an audiobook. So I, I, I can't argue that. Now, if I look to Wikipedia, and as you know, I always do, and, and it says, reading is a complex cognitive process of decoding symbols, so this would apply both to reading with your eyes and your fingers, in order to construct or derive meaning. Yeah, but audio symbols, those are symbols too. Are those too. symbols? Yeah, they really are. I think it's like pre-chewed food. <laughs> well, here's the problem. Somebody read the book in order to read it to you. Yes. So so somehow it's been read twice. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's pre-chewed. Um, this is interesting. This actually is a good article. It's uh, clearly about, you know, kind of the neuroscience of reading. Other types of reading are not speech-based writing systems, such as music notation or pictograms. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the Braille, uh, the Braille ex example is a good example. Yeah, I just thought, oh. Well, depends on how you define that. reading, obviously. That's, yeah, well, yeah. See, I, def I don't define reading as a complex cognitive process of decoding symbols in order to construct or derive meaning. I say it's the process of ingesting writing. <laughs> and you ingest writing... You can ingest and it. under that definition, Leo, I think we all agree. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm ingesting yeah. a book somehow. Yeah. Uh, Adi uh, Kajuria or Kahuria. And more importantly, Henry is too. And so that's... Yeah, he likes audiobooks because he uh, 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 has ADD, as I think all of us now in the tech industry have acquired <laughs> ADD or AADD. Acquired... Wait a minute. Something just came in on my Twitter feed. Hold on a second. <laughs> acquired attention deficit <laughs> disorder. Um, but he says, after a page, I lose interest. I start staring out the window. But audiobooks, I can absorb. And uh, he listens well, intently. He stare out the window and read the audiobook. Well, and it's obviously some mechanical thing in the brain where uh, the process of reading uh, is hard to hold his attention, but he can listen to something. He's like me. I'm an auditory learner as well. So. Well, and I have to say also, I was there was a, a server at a restaurant where I was having breakfast a year ago who attempted to read out loud something which i was reading but then it was time to eat my breakfast and so so <laughs> he picked it up and continued to read it oh. and it was clear that i read effortlessly yeah. something that is written and he was not an effortless reader right. he, it was still work for him right. to turn that printed word into something that meant something and whereas Listening to it was it really drops the barrier. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're a good reader, but you know, but 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 you use audible reading for convenience. You can do it while you drive, and they yeah. won't arrest you. Right. And you know, somebody said, "Well, about music? If you read music and play it, then then the person listens to it. You're not both reading the music. There's somebody reading it, and there's somebody listening. And I guess that's true with an audiobook. There's somebody reading the book, and I am an audiobook listener. So I don't know. I I'm I understand the. Uh, the issue. I do. <laughs> yeah. 
Adi, now we've completely done it's way too much. The topic. Yeah, <laughs> way too much. Way too we made much. No progress. There's no point of so much effort on this simple topic. Adi, but you know that's that's why we're geeks. Geeks obsess. Adi Kajuria in London, UK, wonders about TNO web browsing. Stephen Leo, I've decided enough is enough, and I want to go TNO. Trust no one. With my web browsing by using a VPN, I'm gonna. We got acronym crazy here, virtual private network. With that being said, are there any free VPNs that are reputable and TNO? I know that T O R is TNO. Tor is the onion router we talked about earlier. Is trust no one. I know it's not a VPN, but it's a TNO nonetheless. I was wondering if there are any others out there. I'm on a Mac running Mountain Lion. Rar. He actually writes rar. He did. Yeah. I also have a Windows laptop, which I use on rare occasions using XP. Hmm. Kind, <laughs> I put that in there. Kind regards, Adi. Hmm. So, okay. Um, I'm not sure from what he wrote what he wants. He says, you know, he says, I've decided that enough is enough and wanted to go TNO with my web browsing by using a VPN. Now, okay. A VPN, as we did discuss earlier, it encrypts your link from point A, where you are, to point B, where the VPN server is. So it's the transit between those two endpoints, which is encrypted. But once it arrives at the other end, it is decrypted, coming out of the so-called tunnel, the encrypted tunnel, and then... It either comes to you or it goes out to the internet. So a VPN can be used to hide your location. That is, people out on the internet will see the IP of the traffic as that of the VPN server, where it goes into the server to be encrypted and then come to you. But as we just saw by talking in depth about the Onion router... That really doesn't provide identity or location protection, whereas the onion router does, because it's easy to see. It's either easy once you get to the VPN server to see where its incoming traffic is being routed to. Um, so, and so he says enough is enough and wants to go TNO with my web browsing. So. I'm also thinking that maybe what he's really thinking is like, you know, identity being tracked and and followed and so forth. And, of course, that's about the storage of of information, of state information, typically about his computer or about his browser so that when he appears at other websites, he can be re-identified as somebody who was also somewhere else earlier. So that's you know, generically called tracking, where as he bounces around the net, he his location is tracked because there's some sort of identifying tag on him, you know, on his on the events that he puts out onto the internet that allow it, you know, him to be tracked down. So neither um I don't know I'm sure the onion router must do anonymizing of your traffic, although it's mostly meant for for making you untraceable, um, it probably does header stripping and things. I, I frankly, it's been so long since I looked at it, but I'm sure that we dis- we discussed it in our Onion Router podcast uh, that we did previously in detail. 
So anyway, I just wanted to sort of sort of explain what Addy was asking from the context of, well, I'm not quite sure what it is he's trying to achieve, but simply a VPN doesn't do it. And I don't think there are free ones. There are free trials. Oh, they're free VPNs. You know, hot, yeah, they're hot, not very good. Spot. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. say that's the problem yeah. is that, you know, you they get don't what put you any pay bandwidth for. there's, you know, behind it. Yeah. Or hardware and normally it. they're like, here, try this for free. And if you want, you know, better service, then pay us. Yeah. You know, there's one like a uh, hotspot VPN. Comes that's the one mind. I use. And I love that. That's now for a hundred bucks, you get hotspot, a year of hotspot VPN, and they give you a free little device. It's really awesome. That's a Wi Fi receiver firewall that has hotspot VPN built into it. So yep. you, you put it on the Velcro on the back of your laptop. It goes by Ethernet into your laptop. It picks up the Wi-Fi signal. Wherever you are. Wherever you are. Blocks, you know, the does the firewalling, but also then connects you without any, you don't have to do any configuration or software on your computer, connects you to hot, your connect account at hotspot VPN. So I really like that little, it's not too big either. Deck of cards. Not free, but I think it's eight eighty eight a month. Is yeah, what they, is right. They quote. But I, and, and I would highly good. recommend doing the ninety nine dollar a year deal if you think you're going to do this because you get the hardware and hotspot VPN makes it very right. very easy. Um, right. What was the one everybody was using during the Olympics? Chat room, I'll remember because I think that one was free. I want to say like something like Torrent Buffalo or. You mean they were like u- using it over in China? In order no, they to, were using to... it in the U.S. so that they could use the oh. be- watch the BBC for the Olympics. Ah, because the because NBC was so terrible. <laughs> Tunnel Bear, I knew it was something like that. Now is Tunnel Bear free? That's cute. Never yeah, heard of it. Tunnel Bear. But you're right. It depends what he wants, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Single, yeah. See, this looks pretty good. This is it says simple, private, free access to the global internet. You heart. Um, now they do, I see free and then there's pricing. So I would guess that the free gives you a hearty helping of 500 megabytes every month. Uh, if you want more then it's five bucks a month for unlimited tunneling. And then you can buy $50 for a year. So tunnel bear, that's actually smart of them. You can get your first 500 megabytes, which for free. So that's not too bad. Yeah. Anyway, enough of that. Moving on. Ian Smith near Grenoble, France. Speaking of the Olympics, Winter Olympics were there some years ago. Wonders about a six-digit password. Steve, my French bank has just changed their online banking. <laughs> so I am now... I, I think that's like, kind of an, an Irish accent. I don't know. It's Steve Martin doing a, a bad French... Uh, <laughs> so I am now limited to my six <laughs> digits for a password. Six digits? <laughs> six yeah. digits? I need to enter it in an on-screen widget thingy. Previously, the limit on password length was longer. Mine was 12 characters, and I could have letters and digits. They moved the order of the 0 to 9 buttons each time to make things more interesting. (laughs) But I still believe this is a backward step security-wise. So my podcast question is whether the on-screen keyboard is more or less secure than a standard password entry field. And why? For info, Citibank used to do this, but they switched back to standard keyboard entry, which allows me to use LastPass. That's the other problem with this little pin thing is you can't, LastPass won't support it. Thanks for the podcast and for Vitamin D, Ian Smith, a Spinrite user for many years. So this is not as bad as it sounds oh. on the surface. It sounds horrible. 
He does. But consider that our one-time passwords, like our little famous football for eBay and PayPal and VIP and so forth, those are all six characters. And the idea is that, obviously, they change constantly. Well, rather than the password changing constantly, the position of the numerals is changing every time. So you use the same fixed six-digit password, which you remember, but the location of those is different every time and provided ah. by, by the so website. So the password is actually where you're touching. Yes. Ah. Yes. And that changes every time. So oh, that's a one-time password, in other words. Effectively, it is. Oh. What, they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to prevent something which is scraping the screen. Right. Mo you know, watching where you're clicking. Or, from gaining, or a keystroke logger. Uh, or a keystroke logger. So it, it, it thwarts keystroke logging. It Notice that it thwarts LastPass, which, yeah, which is, is not, not what you want. Yeah. On the other hand, the fact that it does gives you some sense for some of the benefit and there and by rearranging things every time even if you wrote something custom for noting the coordinates where you clicked they don't mean they mean something different each time so so if we also assume that there is good security behind this that is for example you can't just sit there and guess and guess and guess that is you know you get three strikes and then you're you got to talk to customer service you know presuming pr pr presumably there is also some you know retry limit and then you're elevated to some other level of needing to authenticate i i think this is pretty good you know it's funny now that you explain it it sounds good I just yeah. didn't understand it. Now, do you want me to do question five as a video question, or should I read the question, then play the video? Uh, read the question. I'll talk and, and explain. And then you and can then tell me. I when, think it'd be fun okay, to play good. the video. Yeah. So this comes from Juan Cabrio in the UK. He shares a revelation and a question. Why? Why, Steve? Why? As you are the world-renowned super guru, Mr. Gibson, of a great many things, including spinning discs and especially those that don't spin right, <laughs> I thought I'd tell you a tale of great calamity. We had our gas fire suppression release over the weekend in our data center. Our gas fire suppression released over the weekend. Ooh, that's like some, I don't know what that is. What we found is an alarming number of disk failures at the second the gas was released. Some entire arrays have been wiped out. What I believe from the, if, at this point is that the noise, the noise from the 2200 PSI gas release is what killed the drives. That sounds crazy. How could noise kill the drives? I read the link below, which has me maybe convinced this is the issue. Uh, I don't see the link here, but... Uh, We'll let you explain oh, yeah. that. The fire suppression vendor has advised the DBs from the release in a relatively confined space is extreme. Oh, so the sound oh, as the in D, decibels. The sound decibel level. Yeah. <laughs> extreme. Well, I'm glad you weren't in there. You'd be deaf. The gas we use is completely inert, not harmful to anything, human hardware or otherwise. Can a man of your great wisdom advise one way or the other? I should note there wasn't actually a fire. There was a fault in the system. Thanks from the long-term listener. So they had a fire suppression system. 
Yes. Which triggered. You remember, like, you remember, like, Halon gas is right. released. And apparently, because data centers are large, it is necessary to release the gas fast. Right. That is, you want to get it out into, you want to fill the air very quickly. So the releasing press, the, the gas is under tremendous pressure. It is released through nozzles that are doing their best, but apparently the releasing is loud and it's accompanied with al alarm bells that are somewhere north of about 120 decibels in strength. So, you know, because want, you want to get people out of there because you're about to fill this with a gas that's not oxygen. So I, there's a YouTube video, which is really fun. Um, I, and you might play the, the beginning of it at least. Um, I have a, I, I tweeted the link in my Twitter feed for anyone who's interested. And it shows the reduction in hard drive throughput when you shout at a drive. What? Yes. So drives are sensitive to yes. sound. What has happened, and it's funny because I had uh, two instances. Uh, a buddy of mine uh, from who I worked with years ago uh, asked about for a copy of Spinrite to see whether he could detect, he, he could use it to measure data transfer rate because they were having some problems with servers and they'd noticed that like just doing something like putting like pushing their hand down on the case made the thing perform better and it turned out that the vibration from the fans in the server case was was enough that it was throwing the drive's heads off track and so they were uh, the data throughput dropped because that they, they were going off track and having to go around another revolution in order to try to get oh, back on track and find the data. And so in this YouTube video, um, it's which is just funny, it's a guy who's got some data throughput measuring instrumentation uh, and shows the graphs, and he goes over and screams at an <laughs> array. He calls them JBODs, you know, just a bunch of disks or just, just a bunch of drives. He screams at them, and then you can you see graphically the drop in throughput, uh, you know, just from him yelling at his drives. Let's let's take a look at the video. I mean, we just made an interesting discovery, and we thought we'd show you straight away. So over here, here I'm measuring disk I/O operations broken down by latency. Um, I've also drilled down to disk I/O operations taking at least 520 milliseconds broken down by disk. This is using D-Trace so I can do performance analysis of disks. I'm applying a write workload to two JBODs, which are over here. Big JBODs, too. There's a lot of drives. I'm clicking on these JBODs because they're doing work. What I'm going to do is not recommended. This is not supported. Do not try this at home. Ah! He's shouting at it. And look, it, look at the latency spike. <laughs> Another latency spike. Well, I think that's unless it's a hoax. I it think that's that's pretty convincing. I mean, it yep. might be could be a hoax, I guess. But no, uh, well, see, this is what's happened: is that hard drives have become incredibly sensitive vib to vibration as a side effect of 
the insane densities that we are demanding from drive manufacturers or they're demanding from themselves and their own engineers to be competitive the packing we, of the of the of the of the bits yes. is so tight that there, it, there, you can't it, it, have any variation or you won't right. be able to read it. The good it. news is you, you have inertia that keeps the drive spinning at a, at a close enough speed. But, so that's one dimension. But, the, but the, the off-track problem, that is vibration of the drive, um, the head is trying to maintain itself over, exactly over the track, which has year after year after year become thinner and thinner and thinner the track density has gone up so high that staying on track almost requires a, a zero vibration environment wow. so much so that anything that disturbs the environment like that guy yelling at his drives i mean it it creates a demonstrable problem now if you're just reading that's that's not a huge problem because the drive will realize it it could not read the sector it just waits for it to come right, around yeah. again yeah if you happen to be writing though that's a problem in fact that's one of the things that spin right is about fixing because if you're writing during vibration you're actually you know you're going off the trail and you can't tell that you're not on track because uh. the head is busy writing and, and it's written then permanently off track mm -hmm. so it's you, you've got to essentially go back to where it wasn't supposed to be in order to get the data which is something that Spinrite does but but this demonstrates something i thought i just loved how you know graphical it was i mean it's very clear so anyone who wants to see that um look, look at uh, twitter.com slash sggrc i recently tweeted you know uh, do not shout at your drives and the link so uh it's uh, wild yeah. By the way, do not point your portable dog killer at the drives either, I would imagine, right? Even if those are inaudible, yeah. they're still, that's high-frequency vibrations. Yep. <laughs> it's really great. <laughs> I, I, it makes sense. Uh, John Pfaff in Pittsburgh, PA, shares his thoughts about Damon. That's uh, our favorite, uh, one of our favorite novels by Daniel Suarez. I heard you talking about Damon and Freedom by uh, Daniel Suarez for some time, and I've always wanted to pick it up, but just didn't get around to it. Then I was walking through the airport, and I saw it there in hardcover for $7.99. I couldn't pass up that deal, so I bought it. I couldn't put it down. Usually when I read, I fall asleep within an hour or so. Not with this. I had to force myself to stop so I wouldn't stay up all night. This book scared the crap out of me more than any <laughs> psycho thriller I could find. I don't see a black sedan or silver BMW without looking to see if there's a driver. I want to go live with the Amish. Wow. <laughs> When I came back through the airport, I looked for Freedom TM, but they didn't have it. They were out of Demon 2. I'm buying Freedom TM today for the Kindle. You have to because it's the second part, basically. It's a two-parter. So I can read it on my iPad and smartphone as well. Thanks for a great podcast, I swear. I get as much out of the ancillary stuff as I do out of the computer security stuff. I've been a SpinRite user for a couple of years, and it did save me once, but not in a story-worthy way. Security Now and Twitter, the only two netcasts I listen to religiously. Keep up the great so I loved his writing. I just wanted to remind our listeners that that's another great book. Um, I I really did enjoy Love it. it. It's it's really well done. And you know, as as we get more and more deeper into the weeds with these with these uh, drones, Kill Decision, uh, which is Daniel Suarez's yeah. latest, uh, and it's all about unmanned drones and the uh, illicit use thereof. 
uh, becomes creepy. it sounds more and more like uh, fact, not fiction. Yep, especially those new little quadricopter gizmos mm-hmm. that you know th- that actually exist. It's part of part of the story in Homeland season one, as a matter of fact. John Engel, Fredericksburg, Virginia, wonders about one-way Ethernet transfer. Stephen Leo, thanks for providing such an interesting podcast. I found both your products and services to be extremely useful, especially Spinrite. I use Spinrite about once every six to eight months or so on my home server in order to prevent any disk failures. So far, so good. Cool. Anyway, in your recent podcast, 379, you spoke about a company called Owl Computing Technologies. They specialize in one-way transfer type hardware. I did a little research online and found some resources to discuss how to create a transmit-only Ethernet cable. Couldn't one use something like this in conjunction with a protocol like UDP for purposes of enforcing a hardware solution? Would this be a practical home solution to make sure an attacker could not modify logs, files, notifications, etc.? If this is possible, why would Owl Computing need to create a new protocol? Well, yeah, you just take That's out the receive pin, right? Well, uh, the way the way Ethernet uh, 10 base T and 100 base T works, not 1,000 base T, but uh, but up to 100 gigabits. I mean, 100 megabits, megabits per second. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that even though the cable the cables are always RJ45 connectors, which means eight pins. Ethernet actually only uses four wires. Mm-hmm. That is, they use them as two twisted pairs, one in each direction. So one pair of wires is always transmitting, and the other pair is always receiving. And in fact, that's why you have to have, sometimes you had to have like a, a, null, a null cable or sometimes a crossover coupler or a crossover cable. It was because in some topologies you'd you'd try to you'd be plugging a cable in where the it was confused about who was receiving and who was transmitting um newer switches that you plug into they have automatic recognition of that but the, some of the older ones did, didn't yeah most new so, computers do too yeah right so um if you were to cut the two wires in one particular direction you would get an Ethernet cable that could only receive or only transmit. That, or actually, better stated, it would only transfer data in one direction between two endpoints. Mm. Now, why is that? Why does that not work? That doesn't work because Ethernet is not just about UDP. It's true that UDP is a, as we've discussed often is a one-direction protocol. That is, you simply send a packet off and with, you know, no handshake required. TCP, by definition, requires a multiple multiple packet interchange to get going. Not so with UDP. But UDP is layered on top of underlying, other underlying protocols like IP, IP has things like ICMP, Internet um, Control Message Protocol, where things like Traceroute and Ping and, and things that manage, manage the IP layer live. And then below that is the Ethernet protocol itself. 
And so, for and for example, Ethernet has protocols like ARP that we've discussed, addressed resolution protocol, which must be two direction. They're bi-directional protocols. The when an endpoint is getting on the net, it sends out an ARP broadcast to the gateway but it doesn't know the IP of the gateway. So it sends it out in, that's why it's called a broadcast, to every device on that, on that um, local link and says, hey, I'm looking for who's got IP, whatever. And then the, the, the endpoint with that IP responds saying, hey, heard your request. Here's my MAC address and my IP. And then this thing knows how to address traffic to that IP by using its Ethernet MAC address. The point is that even though the higher level protocol like UDP may work in only one direction, none of the other protocols that, that, that UDP relies on are unidirectional protocols just because that's, you know, it's like never been a need. So, so it would take more than just cutting a couple wires in an Ethernet cable to get a working architecture. You know, you could do things like hardwire the ARP table. There are ways to do that. So you, you, you pre-train your system that, you know, this IP is in that direction. But my sense is, you know, you, it, it's, it's not as easy as just cutting the two wires. There, you could probably shoehorn, a, you know, one-dimensional or one-directional operation but it would be a little, there's a little more to it than just, you know, cutting a couple of wires and saying, hey, why, why doesn't this not work? It's because uh, the underlying protocols all assume bidirectional traffic. Hmm. It's probably easier just to use a firewall. Yeah. And, <laughs> right. Although then you don't have, you know, you, you don't have hardware enforcement of, of that. Somebody in the chat room says that ATM, which is a, a media transport, high speed media transport, you, it can be configured for one way. Ah. The point of this is what? To, so that like if you had a secure power plant to, to have yeah. it. Have... And, and in fact, you and I talked about it last week. The, uh, this, owl, this owl computing company, they actually use optical fiber where there is only a transmitter on one fiber and only a receiver at the other end of that. So by physics, the, tra- the information can only go in one direction. Mm-hmm. And, and so to do that... They have, they have to sort of like terminate the protocol at each end. So they satisfy everybody on the transmitting end themselves that, that their message has been received. Then they blindly transmit it through the fiber optic cable to the other end and, and without any acknowledgement that the other end has received it because, you know, they can't, by definition, they can't get an, an acknowledgement back. So th- th- this was a neat technology for, like, you know, protecting nuclear power plants from, from intrusion where they wanted to extrude information for monitoring purposes but not allow that to be hacked in some way to get control. Question eight from John Bell in Northern Virginia or Nova. He's been made curious about full disk encryption. Steve, in the last episode of Security Now, you and Tom, I guess it was more than the last couple of episodes back, you and Tom were discussing full disk encryption and specifically the use of cascading encryption. I have a comment and a question. Comment, I think you might have missed a big advantage of cascading encryption. In a previous episode, you talked about how a brute force attack can know that it has found the key because it checks the decrypted data against a dictionary 
to see if the text produces recognizable words. In cascade encryption, the brute force application may get the outer key correctly, but it won't know because the resulting encryption is still random data and not recognizable words. Thus, the only way for the brute force app to produce results is to create a nested loop of outer key and inner key decryptions until it hits recognizable words. The amount of time needed for that, as you might imagine, is pretty big. So, question. At the end of that segment, Tom boldly stated that all hard drives should have full disk encryption. I don't have a lot of personal data on my hard drive, just some account passwords. I don't see too much that I need to protect. Aside from protecting personal information, is there a compelling reason to encrypt my hard drive that would be worth the performance hit? He's using OS X. So, okay, first of all, uh, about his comment. Um, essentially, chaining encryption like that, using a, a cascade of encryption, it's, it's exactly identical to increasing the key length. So if you had a cipher like AES, which has a 256-bit key, and a different cipher like 2FISH, and I forget how large the key is on, can or can be on 2FISH, but say that it was 256. Well, so what you have essentially is a, is a composite 512-bit key. So this is no really no different than using a very strong cipher with a 512-bit key. The question is, does that buy you anything? <laughs> because it's going to be slower. Right. So... You know, we've already seen, I mean, it's so, it's, it's, it's easy for us to underappreciate what key length means. 128 bits in reality is really all you need. We're talking 256 for, for new applications just because why not? You know, as we talked about at the top of the podcast, cracking is always getting faster. Let's stay way ahead of it. And 256 bits is way ahead of it because every single bit we add doubles the difficulty. So we start at 128 bits, and now we're going to add, we're going to double the difficulty 128 more times. Double it 128 times. It's ridiculous. So, so the really, the only advantage for cascading is, as I said originally, if either of the ciphers turned out to be vulnerable you would still have the protection of the other one that's why it's useful um but really it it it, it doesn't help you uh from a brute force attack except that it does give you a longer a longer effective key than a single cipher would aes maximum key size five is 256 bits if for some reason you want more key than that, well, yeah, you could cascade a cipher and then you'd be concatenating the keys effectively. But as I said, whoa, you know, 256 bits is really enough. The weakness would be in your choosing a password that was as good as your key length. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Excellent point. And, and Tom's comment about whole disk encryption, here's the test. Would you, you know, he mentioned... Okay, I only have some account and passwords. Well, do you mind if those are public? I mean, because that's the test is, yes, it's a trade-off. So you're saying you apparently there's some resistance to encrypting your whole drive. Okay, um, there really isn't a performance hit that we've been able to measure. Um, when I was testing the performance of the latest TrueCrypt, I couldn't see 
anything being slower using TrueCrypt. Um, there's a little bit of overhead of having to manually put in a password every single time you turn on your computer, but that's necessary because the bad guys have to also. If you don't have to, they don't have to. And so you just need to say, okay, if somebody got my computer and say that it was password protected, but they could they could briefly remove your drive and mount it as a secondary drive on a computer that did boot up, well, then they would have access to your drive. There's zero protection. So that's the thing to keep in mind. Ask yourself, what if? And if and see how the answer comes back. <laughs> uh, question nine, Rob Alexander in Boston. He's wondering about SSL in, in, interception and LastPass. Steve, great podcast. Been a listener for a while. I'll skip to the chase. Give you my question so I don't have to say blah, blah, blah. But he did anyway. Blah, blah, blah. I am at a company that was recently acquired and have been forced to migrate to a new IT infrastructure. They're forcing us to use Windows 7 and have installed various monitoring and controlling pieces of software. One of the things they claim they can do is intercept SSL traffic so they can decrypt it and inspect what's inside. The claim for this is uh, they have to prevent malware or filter outbound connections to malicious websites. First, how can I tell if SSL interception is occurring? Will the Firefox plugin Search Patrol re reveal this if my company is installing a new root CA in Windows that is used by their SSL proxy to generate new certificates for real websites? Secondly, will LastPass's encryption of my vault still prevent them from seeing my passwords contained in the vault, even if the SSL transport can't protect the download of the vault from LastPass's servers? My suspicion is yes, but I was curious if there are any other considerations for data leakage or exposure of sensitive data that I have. So we've covered the first part many times. I do realize, though, that we're continually getting new listeners. And this is an often asked question. That is, how do I know if my company or my school or my organization or whatever can be seeing my encrypted traffic? And the answer is pretty simple. Go to a site that uses SSL. For example, go to, you know, just Google HTTPS colon slash slash www.google.com and verify that the browser says you are, you've established an SSL connection. That's important because your comp your organization could be removing your attempt to bring up an SSL con connection. That would be a horrible thing for them to do, but it's possible. So make sure, you know, your the, the address bar turns green or blue or whatever color it's supposed to when you've got a, a secure connection. Then right-click on the page and save and, and choose View Certificate, which is what most browsers allow you to do, and inspect the so-called the certificate chain. It's, it's typically a, a sort of a hierarchy of, of links up to some final authority, which is typically VeriSign or, you know, some may, you know, maybe GoDaddy, some, some certificate provider who provided the authority for the certificate to Google. And I guess we could look and see who Google's uh, CA is. But the point is, you want, you need that chain to terminate there at, at that authority, not at something like that's got your company name in it or, or like anything that looks fishy. If it looks fishy, then it probably is. And it can't it's say like, the name of the actual website, like Google.com, unless 
it's legitimately Google.com, right? It, they, they can't have a certificate that, ha that spoofs the actual name. Yeah, it, right. And it would be, it would be that, that... Even if it's self-signed. Yes, because your browser would then not accept that. Your, your browser needs to get a certificate from Google saying, I am Google and here's my, here's my credentials. So, but, the, but the problem is, if your company were intercepting, they would be building fake Google certificates on the fly so that you'd still have a certificate that looked like it was coming from Google, but it would not be signed by Google's certificate authority. It'd be signed by your company acting as a certificate authority, which your browser would have been fooled into trusting because a certificate would have been installed on it. So you want to make sure that the, the, the highest level of authority in that chain is, is a legitimate certificate authority, a public authority, not something local and, and private to your company. And you, you could tell that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty obvious. Yeah. And so the sec second part of the question was a little bit more interesting, and that is if the company was completely violating your, this, the security of your secure connections, what about LastPass's vault? And that's the beauty is LastPass does never relies on any link-level encryption, none. That is, so it is secure with, with, you know, if SSL didn't exist at all. And that's the beauty of what LastPass has done is they use, uh, as, um, uh, uh, as Rob expected, they use local encryption in the browser so that when, when the user's data, LastPass database, their vault, is being sent up to LastPass, it is pre-encrypted, it is full TNO. Trust no one. It is pre-encrypted in the browser and sent as an opaque blob. So not only can your company not decrypt it, neither can LastPass. And that's what's so elegant about their solution is nobody can see into that blob except you, you who have the master key that never leaves your control, even if your company is watching you. Yes. So, Rob, you're safe. Right on. Yep. Right on, right on. Last question for more thought in the UK. Actually, it's a comment, really, about the uh, the hush puppy, yep. the portable bark killer. He says, you know, and you wanted to set that, uh, you were planning on setting it uh, at 15 kilohertz. He says, that's not high enough. Children and adults that have good hearing can hear it. Dog devices like your PDK are way higher at 18 to 20 kilohertz. And I would hope you increase the frequency to at least 19. By the way, I'm 28 years old, and I still hear frequencies up to 16K easily. Okay, so I have set it at 15, and the components that I have chosen pretty much lock it at 15. That is, one of the, one of the ways I reduce the, the component count and the cost to a few dollars, which is truly what this thing ends up costing, is that... The amplifier is tuned. The amplifier itself is tuned to resonate at 15 kilohertz. Mm. Um, so if you try to use 14 or 16, you get a much lower amplitude output. It just it's 
it peaks at 15. And in fact, even that will be tunable a little bit uh, shortly, just so you can actually find the exact center of that tune spot. Since component tolerances vary, it may be that that the actual sweet spot is, well, you could guarantee that the sweet spot is going to be slightly different from one to another, although I've arranged for it not to be too peaky. I chose 15 for a reason. I, too, can hear it. And I decided, first of all, um, canine hearing is acute at 15, but it, too, begins to fall off at higher frequencies. So even though... A dog hearing is very good. It's at, at 20 kilohertz, it's beginning to be less sensitive. And we definitely want some, the whole point is for something that is loud and startling to a dog that's barking so that, the, and it's like completely unfamiliar in its experience of life. It's like, I've never had that happen before. <laughs> so, so we want something that gets its attention. So consequently, we want it to perceive it as loud. But, the other problem is the mechanics, the, the, the tweeters. Tweeters have a difficult time going a lot higher. They're, they say, oh, they go to 20 kilohertz, but they're already beginning to fall off before that. So I also didn't want, again, for the goal of getting the maximum output power, I didn't want to go too high. But lastly, I, I want people to be able to hear this. I don't want something which like makes no perceptible sound because people might be inclined to aim this thing in their ear and pull the trigger. And this thing generates substantial acoustic energy. That's the point. But we need to think of it. I mean, this is not a toy. You know, a knife is obviously not a toy. It, we, we intuitively understand that it's pointy and sharp and a gun is not a toy. We we understand from our real world experience, you don't aim, you don't point that at anybody, any, you know, person. So so I wanted something where you could perceive that this thing was not something you wanted to aim at anybody, you know, like, you know, like like put it right up to them, you know, anyone that you care about. Um and I and also, I mean, you need to use it judiciously. In fact, if you try to if you try to use it for too long, the sound volume decreases because the we're putting so much power into this tweeter that the that, that these piezoelectric ceramic heats up and becomes less efficient. So for the first second, it's the loudest, and then it begins to it begins to get quieter, uh, which is I th I think that's fine design wise because this is meant to be used in short bursts to get a dog's attention. And, and cause it to react rather than to do harm to anybody. So I'm, I'm happy. I absolutely hear it. I mean, I keep this thing pointed down at the table when I'm, when I'm using it because I don't want it aimed at me. And, and I think it's important that this thing be treated with respect. And I'm going to print up and, and do the design for some warning labels, which I would advise people to put on these things when they make them because it's, it's not a toy. So that's why I said it at 15. Uh, I think that's a really good point. You don't want it to be completely invisible. No, it's like an x-ray machine. You know, there's a, there, there's a reason that your dental tech leaves the room every yeah. time yeah. you're getting x-rays and why, you know, your gonads are draped with a lead apron yeah. is that, you know, this stuff is dangerous. And but 
if we don't perceive it, it's very difficult to act responsibly. It's a little bit like getting a sunburn at the beach. It's like, well, one good sunburn, and that teaches you a lesson, that even though you can't see something happening, it is. So I, I didn't want to be have this be completely imperceptible, and believe me, it's not. You, you, I'd be surprised if anyone can't hear it because, you know, it really pumps out some power. So I thought, yeah, let's just, you know, help people to, restreat, to treat this thing with respect. Steve, you know what? I you have my respect. That's who's <laughs> that's who's got respect. Steve Gibson is the man behind G, this show, grc.com. Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. Lots of freebies at grc.com. If you want a 16 kilobit version of the show, we've got it. Or Steve's got it at grc.com. He also has uh, text transcriptions done by human beings, so they're accurate. One uh, human being in particular, <laughs> Elaine. And actually, Elaine wants one because she's got a problem when, when she's riding her horse of, of uh, dogs want to, you know, nip at the heels of the horse. So she's going to make sure first that it doesn't spook the horse. I imagine the horse could probably get used to it. Um, but she, she would like to see if it would allow her to, you know, you know, zap the dogs and convince them that chasing this horse is not a good thing to do. That's interesting. All kinds of uses. Yeah. Wow. Um, we do this show Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's a 1800, 1900 UTC. It keeps jumping around. Watch live. Yeah, because we, you know, it's this stupid uh, Ben Franklin. I blame Ben Franklin. <laughs> uh, but, but we do have audio and video after the fact. Steve's got the local, you know, the uh, bandwidth constrained version. And we have the video and the audio at twit.tv and wherever better podcasts are offered. Uh, just look for security. Hey, they're, all, they're all here. They're all at twit.tv, Leo. They're That's all where here. the best podcasts are to be found. They're all here. Yeah, we won last night. I have an award from Stitcher, which Yay. is a great little podcast app for the best tech show. And that nice. was audience voted. So thank you, everybody in the audience. Uh, it wasn't for security. Now it was for Twit. Uh, but uh, next year, uh, now that I know they do these awards, we're going to make sure that uh, Security Now gets a nomination. All well. we have to do is tell our faithful listeners, and they will do the rest. Absolutely. They've done so, they've done so in the past. When it comes down to an audience-voted uh, award, I think there's nothing we can't win. But uh, that's a nice award. That's a prestigious award. We're uh, also nominated, and I will be at the uh, award show in Vegas. for the. There's two big award shows. There's podcast the podcast awards. I don't know if we're nominated in those or not. I'm hosting that, though. Ah, cool. And there's the um, International Academy for Web Television um, that has an award every... Uh, yeah, actually, this is the second annual uh, at um, CES, and we are nominated for uh, several awards at that. Very so cool. And you are pumping out video, so that would explain it. Yeah. We are web television. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm excited about that. And people, if they want to go, uh, if you're a member, you can vote. Vote for us. And if you want to go, uh, you can go to IAWTVAwards.org. If you're going to be in Vegas for CES, go a, a day early. It's, I think it's Tuesday night. And you can see the awards, and I, I will be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Is it in February this year? January. Or next year? Jan uh, oh, January. 8th, something like that. And I think the awards are January 7th, I guess. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be fun. Steve, thanks so much. We'll see thanks, you next Leo. week. On Security Now. Security Now.